This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Gomez Palacio by Roberto Bolaño. In the rearview mirror, I could see an enormous wall rising beyond the town. It took me a while to realize it was the night. The story was chosen by Daniel Alarcon, who was featured in The New Yorker's 20 Under 40 fiction issue and has been publishing stories in the magazine since 2003. His novel Lost City Radio came out in 2007. He joins us from the studios of KQED in San Francisco. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Deborah. So Bolaño was raised in Chile. He lived in Mexico, and then he spent his last years in Spain. He died in 2003, which was the year that his work started to come out in English translation. When did you first come across him? Were you reading him before that in Spanish? I'd heard of him. He was one of those writers that, that was uh, sort of starting to, to become very, very well known. And then, you know, two years later, he was one of those writers that every university student had a, <laughs> a copy of his book under their arm, and it just exploded. I think I remember I was traveling in 2003, 2004, actually, when uh, 2666 arrived in, in Chile. And, you know, everyone was, was just uh, devouring it. Bolaño was, was someone who had a pretty complicated life. He was a left-wing activist and poet in Chile and El Salvador and Mexico. Then he moved to Spain and started writing fiction while working menial jobs you know, as a dishwasher, a garbage collector, among other things, to support his family. But he didn't switch from poetry to fiction until he was in his early 40s, and then he died at 50. But in that really short time, he produced 10 novels and several story collections. Have all those books meant something to you? You know, I think The Savage Detectives and 2666 are two of the most important books written in Spanish, you know, in, in the last 50 years. And, you know, they're, they're canonical now, I think, in, in world literature. There's no question about that. One of the things that I find so compelling, uh, and I think a, a lot of people find compelling about Bolaño's work, is that the, the shorter works and the larger works together seem to form an, an entire kind of statement or declaration of the description of a universe, almost. And the way the texts refer to each other, the way he samples himself, you know, uh, I'm thinking of Amulet is taken directly out of 2666 or Distant Stars taken out of Nazi literature in the Americas. And characters appear and reappear in different guises with different names sometimes. It's just so impressive. Right, that it becomes a whole. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, he exploded and everyone was walking around with, with a Bolaño volume tucked under their arm. It seems that when people first come to Bolaño, they find one small thing, or perhaps they read one of the novels, and then they end up reading the entire oeuvre. You know, it's not, uh, they become fanatical. And perhaps it's the way that the books are linked together that makes people do that. I think so. I think there's something else at work. There's something very seductive about his his narrative style, I think especially for young writers, in that it seems that you can get away with writing a story that's essentially plotless because it, it so accurately describes a mood. And these kind of atmospheric pieces, like the one we're about to read, work very well in the absence of really anything happening. And I'm not sure quite how he does it. I think young writers specifically find that uh, very liberating. They're like, oh, okay, well, nothing has to happen for this to be a great piece of art. Well, a lot of his work has, has a really strong political context. Do you think that that's true of the story we're, we're about to hear? I don't think the story is directly political, but I think so much of Bolaño's work has uh, the weight of this generation scattered after the coup in Chile in 1973, and, you know, dreams are shattered in their lives as well. And so you, you certainly feel that in, in this story where you have a young writer who's kind of adrift um, and looking for meaning or for, a, you know, a place to 
take a next step, I think. Well, we'll talk more after the story. Now here's Daniel Alarcón reading Roberto Bolaño's story, Gómez Palacio. I went to Gómez Palacio during one of the worst periods of my life. I was 23 years old, and I knew that my days in Mexico were numbered. My friend, Montero, who worked for the Arts Council, had found me a stint teaching a writing workshop in that town with its hideous name. First, to warm up, I had to tour the other writing workshops the Arts Council had established throughout the region. A bit of a holiday in the north to start off, Montero said, then you can get down to work in Gomez Palacio and forget all your problems. I don't know why I accepted. I knew that under no circumstances would I settle down in Gomez Palacio. I knew I wouldn't stick to running a writing workshop in some godforsaken town in northern Mexico. I left Mexico City one morning on a bus packed to capacity and began my tour. I went to San Luis Potosí, Aguascalientes, Guanajuato, León, though probably not in that order. I can't remember which town came first or how long I spent in each. Then Torreón and Saltillo. I went to Durango as well. Finally, I arrived in Gomez Palacio and visited the Arts Council offices where I met my future students. In spite of the heat, I couldn't stop shivering. The director, a plump, middle-aged woman with bulging eyes, wearing a large print dress featuring almost all of the state's native flowers, took me to my lodgings, a seedy motel on the edge of town next to a highway leading nowhere. She used to pick me up herself every morning. She had an enormous sky-blue car which she drove, perhaps too boldly, though generally speaking she wasn't a bad driver. It was an automatic, and her feet barely reached the pedals. Invariably, the first thing we did was stop at a roadside restaurant that was visible in the distance from the motel, a reddish bump on the blue and yellow horizon. There, we breakfasted on orange juice and Mexican-style eggs, followed by several cups of coffee, all paid for, I presume, with Arts Council vouchers, not cash in any case. Then she would lean back in her chair and talk about her life in that northern town, her poetry, which had been published by a small local press subsidized by the Arts Council, and her husband, who didn't understand the poet's calling or the suffering it entailed. Meanwhile, I chain-smoked Bali cigarettes and looked out the window at the highway, thinking about the disaster that was my life. Then we'd get back into her car and head off to the main office of the Arts Council, a two-story building whose only redeeming feature was an unpaved yard with three trees and an abandoned or unfinished garden, swarming with zombie-like adolescents who were studying painting, music, or literature. The first time I was there, I hardly noticed the yard. The second time, it made me shudder. None of this makes any sense, I thought. But deep down I knew that it did make sense, and that was what I found unbearably sad, to use a rather hyperbolic expression, though it seemed perfectly accurate at the time. Maybe I was confusing sense with necessity. Maybe I was just a nervous wreck. I found it hard to get to sleep at night. I had nightmares. Before going to bed, I would make sure the door and the windows of my room were securely and tightly shut. My throat always felt dry, and the only solution was to drink water. I was continually getting up and going to the bathroom to refill my glass. Since I was up, I would check the door and the windows again to see that they were properly shut. 
Sometimes I forgot my fears and stayed at the window, looking at the desert stretching off into the dark. Then I went back to bed and closed my eyes, but having drunk so much water I soon had to get up again to urinate. And since I was up, I would check all the locks and then stand listening to the distant sounds of the desert, the muffled hum of cars heading north or south, and looking out of the window at the night, and so on until dawn when I could finally get some unbroken sleep, two or three hours at most. On my last full day, while we were having breakfast, the director asked about my eyes. It's because I don't sleep much, I said. Yes, they're bloodshot, she said, and changed the subject. That afternoon, as she was taking me back to the motel, she asked if I would like to drive for a bit. I don't know how to drive, I said. She burst out laughing and pulled onto the shoulder. A white refrigerated truck went past. I managed to read what was written on the side in large blue letters, the widow Padilla's meat. The truck had Monterrey license plates, and the driver stared at us with a curiosity that struck me as excessive. The director opened her door and got out. Get in the driver's seat, she said. I obeyed. She got in the passenger seat and ordered me to go. I drove along the gray strip of highway connecting Gomez Palacio and the motel. When I reached the motel, I didn't stop. I looked over at the director. She was smiling. She didn't mind if I drove a bit farther. Until then, both of us had stared at the highway in silence. But when the motel was behind us, she started talking about her poetry, her work, and her insensitive husband. When she had said her piece, she turned on the cassette player and put in a tape, a woman singing rancheras. The singer had a sad voice that was always a couple of notes ahead of the orchestra. I'm her friend, the director said. What? I said. She's a close friend of mine, the director said. Ah, she's from Durango, she said. You've been there, haven't you? Yes, I've been to Durango, I said. And what were the writing workshops like? Worse than the ones here, I replied, meaning it as a compliment, although she didn't seem to take it that way. She's from Durango, but she lives in Ciudad Juarez, she said. Sometimes, when she's going back home to see her mother, she calls me up, and I reorganize my schedule so I can go to Durango and spend a few days with her. That's nice, I said, keeping my eyes on the road. I stay at her house, her mother's house, actually, the director said. The two of us sleep in her room and spend hours talking and listening to records. Every now and then, one of us goes to the kitchen to make coffee. I usually take cookies with me, La Regalada cookies, her favorite, and we drink coffee and eat cookies. We've known each other since we were 15. She's my best friend. On the horizon, I could see the highway disappearing into the hills. Night was beginning to approach from the east. Days before, at the motel, I had asked myself, what color is the desert at night? A stupid question, yet somehow I felt it held the key to my future, or perhaps not so much my future as my capacity for suffering. One afternoon, at the writing workshop in Gomez Palacio, a boy asked me why I wrote poetry and how long I thought I would go on doing it. The director wasn't present. There were five students in the workshop, four boys and a girl. You could tell from the way they dressed that two of them were very poor. The girl was short and thin, and her clothes were garish. The boy who asked the question should have been studying at a university. Instead, he was working in a soap factory, the biggest and probably the only soap factory in the state. Another boy was a waiter in an Italian restaurant, and the other two were in college, and the girl was neither studying nor working. By chance, I replied. 
For a while, none of us said anything. I considered the possibility of taking a job in Gomez Palacio and staying there for the rest of my life. I had noticed a pair of pretty girls among the painting students in the yard. With a bit of luck, I might have managed to marry one of them. The prettier one also seemed to be the more conventional. I imagined a long, complicated engagement. I imagined a dark, cool house and a garden full of plants. And how long do you think you'll go on writing? The boy who worked in the soap factory asked again. I could have said anything, but opted for simplicity. I don't know, I said. What about you? I started writing because poetry sets me free, sir, and I'm never going to stop, he said, with a smile that barely hid his pride and determination. As an answer, it was too vague and declamatory to be convincing, yet somehow it gave me a glimpse of the factory worker's life, not as it was then, but as it had been when he was fifteen or maybe twelve. I saw him running or walking through the outskirts of Gomez Palacio under a sky that looked like a rock slide. I saw his friends and wondered how they could possibly survive, yet one way or another they probably had. Then we read some poems. The only one who had any talent was the girl. But by then I wasn't sure of anything. When we came out of the classroom, the director was waiting with two guys who turned out to be civil servants employed by the state of Durango. My first thought was, they're policemen here to arrest me. The kids said goodbye, and off they went, the skinny girl with one of the boys and the other three on their own. I followed them down the hallway with its peeling walls as if I had forgotten to say something to one of them. From the door, I saw them disappear at both ends of that street in Gomez Palacio. The director said, she's my best friend. That was all. The highway was no longer a straight line. In the rearview mirror, I could see an enormous wall rising beyond the town. It took me a while to realize it was the night. The singer on the cassette began to warble another song. The lyrics were about a remote village in the north of Mexico where everyone was happy except her. I had the impression that the director was crying, silent, dignified, unstoppable tears. But I couldn't confirm this impression. I had to keep my eyes on the road. The director took out a handkerchief and blew her nose, turned the headlights on, I heard her say in a barely audible voice. I kept driving. Turn on the headlights, she repeated, and without waiting for a response, she leaned over and did it herself. Slow down, she said after a while, her voice stronger now as the singer reached the final notes of her song. What a sad song, I said, just for something to say. I stopped the car by the side of the road and got out. It wasn't yet completely dark, but it was no longer day. The land all around us and the hills into which the highway stretched were a deep, intense shade of yellow that I have never seen anywhere else, as if the light, though it seemed to me not so much light as pure color, were charged with something. I didn't know what, but it might well have been eternity. I was immediately embarrassed to have had such a thought. I stretched my legs. A car whizzed past, honking its horn, I told him where to go with the gesture. Maybe it wasn't just the gesture. Maybe I yelled, go fuck yourself, and the driver saw or heard me. But it's unlikely, like most things in this story. In any case, when I think about the driver, all I can see is my own image frozen in his rearview mirror. My hair is still long. I'm thin, wearing a denim jacket and a pair of awful oversized glasses. The car pulled up several meters in front of us. 
The driver didn't get out or back up or honk the horn again, but his mere presence strained the space that we were now, in some sense, sharing. Cautiously, I walked around to the director's side of the car. She rolled down her window and asked me what had happened. Her eyes were bulging more than ever. I said I didn't know. It's a man, she said, and slid across into the driver's seat. I got into the seat she had left. It was hot and moist, as if she had a fever. Through the windshield, I could see the man's silhouette. Like us, he was facing forward, toward the line of the highway beginning to wind its way through the hills. It's my husband, the director said, with her eyes fixed on the stationary car, as if she were talking to herself. Then she flipped the cassette over and turned up the volume. Sometimes my friend calls me up, she said, when she's touring in towns she doesn't know. Once, she called me from Ciudad Madero. She'd been singing all night at the oil workers' union building, and she called me at four in the morning. Another time, she called from Reynosa. That's nice, I said. Not especially, the director said. She just calls. Sometimes she needs to talk. If my husband answers, she hangs up. For a while, neither of us said anything. I imagine the director's husband with the telephone in his hand. He picks up the telephone, says, Hello, who is it? Then he hears someone hang up at the other end, and he hangs up too, almost by reflex. I asked the director if she wanted me to get out and say something to the driver of the other car. There's no need, she said, which seemed a reasonable answer to me, although in fact it was crazy. I asked what her husband was going to do if it really was her husband. He'll stay there until we go, the director said. Then we'd better go now, I said. The director seemed to be lost in thought, though later it occurred to me that maybe all she was doing was closing her eyes and listening to her friend from Durango, drinking that song down to the very last drop. Then she turned on the ignition, pulled out slowly and passed the car. I looked out the window as we went by, but the driver turned his back to us and I couldn't see his face. Are you sure it was your husband, I asked, as we sped off again toward the hills? No, the director said and started laughing. I don't think it was. I started laughing, too. The car looked like his, she said, almost choking with laughter, but it probably wasn't him. So it might have been, I said. Not unless he's changed his license plates, the director said, at which point I understood that the whole thing had been a joke. I shut my eyes. Then we came out of the hills and into the desert, a plain swept by the headlights of cars heading north or back toward Gomez Palacio. It was already night. Now we're coming to a very special place, the director said. Those were her words, very special. I wanted you to see this, she said proudly. This is one of my favorite things. She pulled over and stopped in a sort of rest area, although it was really no more than a patch of ground big enough for trucks to park on. Lights were sparkling in the distance, a town or a restaurant. We didn't get out. The director pointed toward something, a stretch of highway that must have been about five kilometers away, maybe less, maybe more. She even wiped the inside of the windshield with a cloth so I could see better. I looked. I saw the headlights of cars. From the way the beams of light were swiveling, there must have been a bend in the highway. And then I saw some green shapes in the desert. Did you see, the director asked. Yes, lights, I replied. The director looked at me. Her bulging eyes gleamed, as do, no doubt, the eyes of the small mammals native to the inhospitable environs of Gomez Palacio in the state of Durango. Then I looked again in the direction she had indicated.
At first, I couldn't see anything, only darkness, the sparkling lights of that restaurant or town. Some cars passed, and the beams of their headlights carved the space in two. Their progress was exasperatingly slow, but we were beyond exasperation. And then I saw how the light, seconds after the car or truck had passed that spot, turned back on itself and hung in the air, a green light that seemed to breathe, alive and aware for a fraction of a second in the middle of the desert, set free, a marine light, moving like the sea but with all the fragility of earth, a green, prodigious, solitary light that must have been produced by something near that curve in the road, a sign, the roof of an abandoned shed, huge sheets of plastic spread on the ground, but that to us appeared to be a dream or a miracle, which comes to the same thing in the end. Then the director started the car, turned it around, and drove back to the motel. I was to leave for Mexico City the next day. When we got back to the motel, the director got out of the car and walked with me part of the way. Before we got to my room, she held out her hand and said goodbye. I know you'll forgive my eccentricities, she said. After all, we both read poetry. I was grateful she hadn't said we were both poets. When I got to my room, I switched on the light, took off my jacket and drank some water straight from the tap. Then I went to the window. Her car was still in the parking lot. I opened the door and was hit in the face by a gust of desert air. The car was empty. A little farther off, beside the highway, I saw the director, who looked as if she were contemplating a river or the landscape of another planet. The way she was standing, with her arms slightly raised, she might have been talking to the air or reciting or playing statues like a little girl. I didn't sleep well. At dawn, the director came to fetch me. She took me to the bus station and told me that if I ever wanted to come back, I would be very welcome at the workshop. I said I would have to think about it. She said that was fine, best to think things over. Then she said, a hug. I bent down and hugged her. The seat I had been given was on the other side of the bus, so I didn't see her leave. The last thing I remember, vaguely, is her standing there, looking at the bus or perhaps at her watch. Then I had to sit down so the other passengers could get past, and when I looked again, she was gone. That was Daniel Alarcon reading Gomez Palacio by Roberta Bolaño. The English translation of the story by Chris Andrews was first published in The New Yorker in 2005 and is collected in Last Evenings on Earth, published by New Directions. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
So Daniel, there's often a kind of winking suggestion of autobiography in Bolaño's writing. The heroes of his stories are sometimes called B. And there's a character in his novel, Savage Detectives, who's named Arthur Bolaño. Do you think that we should assume that the hero of Gomez Palacio is a version of Bolaño? It's hard to separate out his characters from his, his biography, certainly. You know, even when there, there's the image of Bolaño, see, I did it just now. Um, there's an <laughs> image of the narrator uh, who sees his reflection in, in the car that's passing, and he describes himself as kind of skinny, wearing a denim jacket with oversized glasses and uh, and the long hair. And that's kind of the one of the iconic images that we have of a young Bolaño in Mexico. So uh, it's certainly something he's playing with from some of the things that I've read, it seems that de Bologna was very consciously playing with it and, and sort of uh, not just complicit, but very directed in, in sort of the creation of his own mythology. To me, this feels like the narrative of an older man who's looking back on, on his sort of folly as a young man and feeling just a little impatient with himself for his lack of direction, for, for the way he condescended to people and, you know, even for the, the silly oversized glasses and the long hair. Do you, do you get that sense? I do. And I get the sense of... Um, this somber recognition of himself and his own his relationship to his art in the the character of the director you know these 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 young writers in this provincial town in the middle of nowhere and he is very dismissive of them and yet there's nothing to suggest that he's not one of them mm-hmm. in the story it certainly doesn't seem like he's aware of any kind of glorious future full of literary prizes either you know Right. And in fact, the distinction between them is that he can't really explain why he's doing anything, whereas his students actually have a sense of purpose with their writing. That he doesn't seem to respect very much when the, the, the young kid in the, from the soap factory steps up and says, you know, I write to be free. You know, you don't know whether to applaud him or, or to, you know, give him a hug. And <laughs> Bologna kind of does neither, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the story, I mean the character who was clearly not Bolaño. <laughs> well, I feel the same way about the director. What do you think is happening in these exchanges between the narrator and the director? Do you think that he's feeling a genuine connection between them? Do you think he's feeling sort of alienated from this strange, crazy lady in the car? You know, I didn't think that she was that crazy. Yeah. One of the things I find really moving about the story is she's committed to her work, and yet she kind of embraces the ridiculousness of it. You know, let me show you the most special thing in town, you know, and, and they go look at a, this optical illusion in the desert. And it, it strikes me as something, a, you know, a poet would do. I don't know. It, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think of her as that crazy so much as uh, she sort of is what she says she is, um, even if he finds it ridiculous. Well, she's having she's clearly having an emotional time in the car that probably has almost nothing to do with the narrator. Certainly, certainly. And that, that he's sort of been enlisted to be a witness to in a sense. Yeah, well, she's having this conversation with, with herself, you know, and, and he just happens to be there. And, and the fact that she's like, you know, move over and drive, there, there's something, you know, reckless in, in that. And also, uh, the, 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 it's all over the story, this idea of the highway leading nowhere, people looking out into the infinite desert. And these are the sort of places where Bolaño likes to set his fiction, especially when it's set in Mexico, you know, th- these kind of desolate landscapes, you know, where night is coming to crush you. You know, mm-hmm. it, n- night is like a wall that's coming behind you to, to destroy the town. That impending doom is never explained, and everyone is is feeling different shades of it, and yet they're in, unable to communicate its details. Now, who do you think the man in the car is? Perhaps that is the doom coming to get them. I felt pretty sure it was her husband. It's It strikes me that uh, there's a lot going on in that relationship. The A man who gets a phone call... And, you know, the, the other line hangs up, um, is, is bound to start 
thinking the worst if he's the jealous type and we already know that he's insensitive and and their marriage is, you know, at the very least not idyllic. So I, I thought of two possibilities. One, it is her husband, or two, she wishes it were. Mm-hmm. That he cared enough to be jealous. And, that he and cared enough to be jealous, yeah. And, and uh, the interpretation that it is her husband I like because it makes her trying to make the narrator feel better and more safe by telling him, no, no, don't worry, it's not my husband. It's all a joke. He changed his license plates. It can't be him. It makes it kind of a generous act because, you know, there there would be plenty of reasons to be afraid if it were. You know, if you tell someone off in Latin America or in a lot of places, you know, mm-hmm. you raise your hand in a certain gesture and you say certain words, then uh, there's often consequences. You know, what you were, what you were saying earlier about the connections between different Bolaño works, I, I wondered there's one fleeting reference in the novel 2666 to Gomez Palacio. And in this part of the novel, there's a man who's sort of driving along listening to the radio. And then I'll, I'll quote, a voice in Spanish began to tell the story of a singer from Gomez Palacio who had returned to his city in the state of Durango just to commit suicide. Then he heard a woman's voice singing Rancheras. Hmm. And when I read that, I, I just wonder if there's any way in Bolaño's mind that that suicidal singer was the man in the car. It would be one of those strange connections that he has between works. Yeah, I, I was. It's feel a bit like of a stretch. <laughs> it, 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 you know, I think it's it's part of a deliberate sort of strategy of making the works add up to more than the sum of their parts. You know, mm-hmm. there's so much space in his work. In a story like Gomez Palacio, there's so many unknowns that you can sort of uh, read it in the context of other stories and sort of fill in the gaps. When the narrator says the disaster that was my life, if we read other work by Bolaño, we, we can fairly easily infer what those disasters might be. Mm-hmm. Fleeing Chile, wanting to be a writer and having no future, um, what's about to come, which is, you know, the scattering of an entire generation. All these things are, you know, the relationship with his father that we see in some of the other stories that kind of doesn't understand who, we, who his son is, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it wouldn't, I mean, that, that's as, as good an interpretation as any for that line. You know, Francine Prose wrote a review of Bolaño, but uh, focused on this story, and uh, said what amazed me was the aura of mystery and melancholy Bolaño created, a sort of microclimate reminiscent of Babel and Kafka, a weather that obliterated everything outside the story. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting because for her, this microclimate was very much self-contained, you know, obliterating everything outside the story. And this was a sort of one focused, mysterious moment. That's, a, I think, a perfectly valid reading. Um, I just think that... I. For me, I read it with the keeping in mind all these other pieces of writing of his, and it's impossible for me to separate out this narrator from, you know, B or from Arturo Bellano. The material's too rich to ignore, to read this story by itself. But I do, I do certainly understand that reading, and and you know, who am I to argue with Francine Prose? <laughs> reading it the way that you do, we know that there's actually a lot in store for this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is just a, a sort of momentary way station on the way to. A lot of um, more lively activity. Yeah, certainly. All right, well, thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, Deborah. Daniel Alarcon is the author of Lost City Radio and the story collection War by Candlelight, both published by HarperCollins. You can hear authors read their own stories in the iPad edition of the magazine, which you can find in the App Store. Subscribe to this podcast or download previous episodes in the iTunes Store. Just do a search for New Yorker. And let us know what you think of this program on our Facebook page. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.
X. <laughs>